All right, uh, we're starting a new series today. It's a 66-week it's a series. Each week, we're going to cover a book of the Bible. And this first service, I'm going to do Genesis 1 through 11. And then second service, I'm going to do 12 through the rest of the book. So uh, if you'd like, you can watch part two on the, on the internet later if you, if you want to do that. But um, it's going to be an interesting little journey. There's 66 weeks. And if you make it to every single service, watching it online doesn't count, but if if you're here physically, every single service, you'll be in a drawing to go to Israel. Hmm? That sound like fun? Yeah, but you got to be here. So you have to turn in that connection card. That is your attendance. So that's the only way. So you guys are lucky. You guys got a 100% attendance this week. So you are in the running. Only 66 more to go. All right. All right, Genesis 1. All right, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. All right. You could spend your entire life contemplating, trying to delve into the creation account and find truth to it. You really could. These first 11 chapters, you could spend your entire lives trying to discover the mysteries of it. We're going to look at a few things. And uh, we're starting off here. A couple of things that I want you to do. Uh, We're not going to be putting it up on the screen. Good, they didn't put it up. But I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles and underline in your Bibles and write in the margins of your Bibles because this is how we're going to get to know God a little bit better. And when we know God a little bit better, we can pray better. When we know the nature of God a little bit better, we can petition him better. We'll know his nature. We'll know his character. We'll know how he thinks. It's important to do. All right, so... Interesting thing, underline God. In the beginning, God. Uh, Some translations say, in the beginning, when God created. And what we need to understand and get here is that we are talking about God, capital G. And it's actually, in the Hebrew, it's Elohim. It's the very first definition of God. And it is the transcendent God. It's the God that we don't quite understand. It is the God that creates Galaxies and universes and quantum physics and your DNA. We, can, we can't even scratch the surface to understanding how big God is. And this is Elohim. Then we see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And in verse 3, God said, let there be light. And he speaks light into existence. Um, for us Christians, for us, this is actually important. This is an important bit of information. No one else really gets this but us. I don't know if we're, we're forcing the text, but this is how we do it. We see community. And Elohim is actually, it's a singular word, but it, it, it comes off plural, meaning that there's more than one, but it's also singular. So what in the world is going on here? And what is the spirit of the Lord that's hovering over the waters? And then what is very interesting to me is that creation begins by being what? Spoken. And so you get a little snapshot 
from the very first lines of our book of what we call the Trinity, of what we call community. So in the beginning was community. There was a oneness of God, but there was a plurality of God. We see God the Father. We see God the Son because Jesus is the Word, and he is, he is, he is the instrument of creation. He is also the instrument of judgment. But we see God create through the spoken Word. And then we see the Holy Spirit, which is hovering over the water. So we get a really great snapshot of it. Okay, and then we go into the six days of creation. Now, this is, this is important to me, and it's very complex. There's six days. There's a scholar, J.P. Moreland, who teaches at Biola University, and he is uh, you know, a Bible scholar. He's very smart. He's up there with Dallas Willard. Um, he says one of the major factors, there's three major factors why people are leaving the church in droves, why young people leave the church in droves, why there's a disconnect with what we're doing, why we lack revival, why we lack renewal. He said the first thing is, and this is probably the most important, is that there is a lack of power in the church. Meaning that there is no healing that is taking place in most churches. There is no power of God that's taking place. There is no prophetic words that's being spoken. There's no life being breathed in. And I, I don't know. I don't want to be in a dead church that has no power in it. I, I did that in seminary. Right? And so that's the number one thing. And if I'm smart enough to figure out that, you know what, church is kind of fake and there's no power in church, young people can sniff it out to a mile away. So that's the number one thing, is that there is no power in church. J.P. Moreland's thing. It's not rocket science. It's just, it's common sense. The other major factor is this major trend, this major thought pattern uh, it is the spirit of this world, and it's the spirit of our culture, which is secular humanism. It's very persuasive, because it makes a lot of sense. Secular humanism, in a snapshot, says that you can be good without God. And we all know people like this, right? I'm a good person. Why do I need God? I do good things. Why would God send me to hell? I don't need to be in a relationship with God. I can be good without God. And in this city, I don't know if you know this, but this city, the colleges, the five colleges here, and even, even the seminary down the street, they hold true to the secular humanist thought. Um, it's, in some cases, it's the number one authority in the world on secular humanism. So it affects our culture. It affects our community. It seeps in and we don't even realize it. And people say this all the time. I don't need to go to church because I'm a good guy. So that's the other thing. Now, ironically, the last and major third issue that J.P. Moreland says that is affecting the church, believe it or not, is evolution. That's why these six verses are really important. Now, when you read the Bible... There's a couple of approaches that you can take. You can read it for inspiration. You can read it for guidance. You can read it to hear God's voice. And that should be the position that we all take. 
You can also read it as a form of ancient literature. You can study it. You could pick it apart. You can blow it apart. You can look at the different themes. You can look at the different genres. You can look at the different types of, of, of language that it is. There's a million ways that you can read it. But for us, we, we need to be reading it for direction. We need to be reading it for inspiration. We need to be reading it for direction. So there is a modern scholar approach, and then there is a traditionalist approach. I, when I read the Bible, probably at least, I don't know, 80%, 90% of the time, my approach to the scriptures is going to be traditional. When it says something, I believe it. Now, all right, I'm not on the pulpit, because this gets tricky. All scripture is God-breathed. Everything in the book, word for word, line for line, it's all divinely inspired. It is all the word of God. There is a supernatural element that took place when whoever wrote it, we don't know who wrote Genesis. The hardcore traditionalist view says that Moses wrote it. We don't know, because it actually doesn't say. We can't make it say stuff that we want it to say. But the hardcore traditionalist view will, will take it Line by line as a literal interpretation. All right, here we go. This might mess you up a little bit. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit these points real quick, and then I'm going to stop, and we can continue the conversation a little bit later. I don't believe, and this is my opinion, okay? I'm off the pulpit. You see this? I'm not on the pulpit right now. I'm off of it. It is my opinion that the six days were not a literal six days. Is that heresy? I don't think so. I'll, I'll explain it on Wednesday if you want to come. There's a little bubble on your bulletin. If you want to talk about the six days of creation, if you want to talk about evolution, we'll get together and we'll talk about those things. I, I will teach and not preach. Do you understand? So right now I'm trying to preach, but I want to talk about these six days. Because, supposedly, we have lost entire generations because there's this conflict between science and religion. It's one of the factors. It's not the major factor, but it's one of the factors. And so we're going to look at it. Because I know that it derailed me when I was in college. It, it, it wrecked me for a little bit. Because I had a traditionalist view. I had a literal view. I thought that the planet, that all of God's creation, was 6,000 years old. Now, there's other ways to look at it. And this is, a non, this, is a, this is a negotiable fact. This has nothing to do with the divinity of Jesus. It has everything to do about how we read the scripture and how we interpret it. So when you look at the creation account, there's two views. There is old earth and new earth. Old earth says that a day could have been a million years. Old Earth also says that there could have been a gap. There was day one, and in between day one and day two, there was another million years. So that's, why, that's one way that we can look at it. And I think that it's fair, and I think that we can, we can objectively, in my opinion, we can help kids that are struggling with that very fact. We can at least give them two options. Okay, we could say, all right, well, either the planet is 6,000 years old, we have a ton of material culture and fossil record that disputes that. And it's either a big giant lie from the devil or it's true. So here's another alternative. 
It is old earth theory, and it completely fits, and it works. And, and I will show you on Wednesday, if you want to see, if you want to geek out with me, you will see that Genesis 1 is a poem, and it has a, it has a poetic structure. It's called a chiasm, and it was built so that people could memorize it. They didn't care how old the earth was. They wanted their kids to memorize this stuff because most of it got passed down through an oral tradition. Most of them didn't have it in writing. All right. So you can join me on Wednesday night. We'll talk about creation. We'll talk about evolution. And it will be a lot of fun. And it will be a safe place to ask some very difficult questions. You can come. You can bring your kids. We'll have a good time. All right. So there we go. I got to get the other chapters in in about 10 minutes. <laughs> All right. At the end of uh, chapter one, God says, This is the sixth day. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth, the whole earth, the trees, the fruit, the seeds. They will be food for you and all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the ground. Everything that has breath of life, I give every green plant for food. And so it was. Okay, here we go. And God saw that all that he had made, including Adam and Eve, male male and female had been created at this time in God's image, God saw that everything that he had made, and he said it was very good. Before this, everything was good. Everything was good. Everything was good. He makes man, male and female, in his image, and he says they are very good. And you need to make a point of this, because if I have time, it's going to come up in a second. Male and female, the one flesh, Jake has a ministry called One Flesh, by the way, it is very good. It's meaning he has, like God has this value in us. And the whole point of the Bible, which we will see, is about relationship. It's about a, it's about a natural relationship. It's about a family relationship. But we messed it all up. Okay, so it's very good. We are very good. That's how it starts out. Why is this important? You'll see so in a second. All right. Then, uh, chapter 2, the heavens and the earth were complete in all their vast array. Seventh day, God rested. We're going to skip down to verse 4, okay? This is the account of heaven and earth when they were created. Then the Lord God said, uh, made, excuse me, then the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and shrubs, and plants, and rain, and all this kind of stuff. Verse 7, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. All right, I don't know if you've caught this, but this is very strange. Why is this strange? Because we have two creation accounts. Why do we have two creation accounts? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But what we do see, we see a bit of detail. We see it written a little bit differently. 
In chapter 1, who creates the earth? God, capital G, Elohim. A little bit further down, chapter 2, who creates the earth? Did you guys catch it? Who created the earth? Who created Adam? It's not God. Well, it is God, but it's the Lord. Okay, so I want you to underline Lord in your Bibles. Because Lord is a little bit different. Lord, I don't know, maybe some of your Bibles say Jehovah. If you have an old school Bible, it might say Jehovah. But what it really says is Yahweh. Yahweh created Adam, breathed breath into his nostril. Yahweh literally gets his hands dirty in the creation of us. Isn't that interesting? And Yahweh is the one that walks in the garden in the coolness of the afternoon with Adam and Eve. And what does he do? He converses with him. So what we have here, we have a transcendent God that creates the universe. And then we have an eminent God, the same God. It's just different expressions. What is Yahweh after? Yahweh is after a personal relationship with us. He gets his hands dirty in the creation of us, and he's the one that breathes life into us. It's very exciting because this is extremely unique. No other creation account has this. No other creation account says God wants to have this type of a relationship with us. A transcendent God is also an eminent God. An abstract concept of God also wants to be a personal God who wants to go into relationship with us. It's an amazing idea. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to paraphrase the rest of it, okay? All right, here we go. Adam knew his wife, and he had his first, they had their first child, Cain. And then they had their second child, Abel. We know the story. What happens? Cain kills Abel. And you need to underline this, too. Why is this important? Because from the very beginning, we are going to see a huge tension, a major theme for the, through the rest of the scriptures, a major struggle between the older brother and the younger brother. Do you see, how many have brothers? And well, do you guys fight? Yeah. There's always this, I mean, you could love your brother, right? I remember when my, when my sister was born, I was terrified that she was going to be a boy. And they were going to name her Caleb. And I had this, I had this fear I don't know why. I had this fear that my, that my younger brother was going to, you know, take away my power, was going to, uh, you know, undermine me. Was gonna, I was the favorite child, and I was no longer going to be the favorite child. So we had a sister 18 years later, and we still fight. Um, but it's different. But we see Cain kill Abel. And what's the issue? It's because Cain is jealous, because Abel's sacrifice was acceptable, and Cain's was not. Why? All right, it says, 
we got two people. Cain, what was he? Cain was a farmer. He was consumed with agriculture. Abel was a shepherd, is what it says. Abel tended flocks. It is the, it is the quintessential tension between farmers and ranchers. Just think, about the, just think about the Wild West and barbed wire. Think about the OK Corral. It's the cowboys against the farmers. There's this, there's this land feud. Now, I have this strange thought, and I think it might be legitimate because some other people I have discovered have the same strange thought. Um, when, um, when, the, when, when the Europeans first came to America, they discovered two forms of Native American Indians. The Iroquois, which were, which were farmers, and they owned a lot of land. They had a concept of ownership. And then there were the hunter-gatherers who went wherever the buffalo roamed. Who do you think is more likely to kill you? A hunter-gatherer who is skilled in killing, or a farmer who befriended the Europeans? Do you know? No. It was the hunter-gatherers that befriended the Europeans. The Iroquois were the meanest, nastiest people on the continent because they had a sense of ownership. They understood material possession. They owned the land. They were bound to the land. They were consumed by the land. And they would tear your skin off and torture you just to make sure that you understood that fact. And I believe that the same thing is going on with Cain and Abel. I believe that Abel was tied to nature while Cain was tied to the land where he had this material pride, where he had this greed, where he had to have it, where he wanted to hoard. And when the offerings were given, Cain gave some of his, we'll just say money, right? Cain only gave some of his money to the Lord while Abel gave the first fruits and the fat portions because Abel was not, he didn't have any sense of possession. He knew that it belonged to the Lord. So that's why the offering was not acceptable. And blood was spilt. Cain spilt his blood. It sunk into the earth and the earth cried out. Abel's blood cried out from the earth for justice. Now here's the interesting thing. Okay, we're going to begin to move into this relationship with God about covenant. Covenant. What is covenant? Covenant is to make a deal with God. Covenant is a contract. It is the Magna Carta between us and God. I guess it works when both parties choose to be in covenant. When you get married, you, uh, you enter into a covenant you have a piece of paper, you have a legal document that is a covenant. All right, you ready for this? It wasn't God's first intention. Covenant was plan B. God wanted a family relationship and not a covenantal relationship. But we screwed it up. Adam and Eve screwed it up in the garden when they ate the apple. It wasn't an apple, it was fruit. Who knows what it was? 
And then we had, then God's like, all right, I got to fix this. Oh my gosh, we've got sons killing each other. I got to fix this. Okay, so we're going to start to move into a covenant. So he makes a covenant with Adam and Eve. He actually makes a covenant with Cain. And the reason why he has to do it is because we have free will. I'm a free will guy. I believe it. We get to choose. We see it in Genesis 1. Because when Adam was, I don't know, in creation account number two, Adam gets created first by Yahweh, gets breathed in, and then he's alone. It's not good for man to be alone, so I'm going to make a helpmate suitable for him. Does he make Eve right away? No. He marches all the animals in in front of him. And Adam's like, I don't, I don't, like, I don't like camels. I don't like lions. This isn't going to work, God. I need to have somebody like me. But God also says, Adam, I want you to name them. And you ready for this? The Bible says, I want you to name them. And God was curious about what Adam would come up with. See, Adam is created in his image. So Adam can create something out of nothing. He can make names that don't exist, much like God can. So the really weird question to think about, did God know what Adam was going to name the animals? The, the, the scripture says he didn't. I thought God's supposed to know everything. That's another conversation. All right? Here's the other thing, interesting thing. Okay, let's get back to Cain. So Cain kills his brother. God finds out because Abel's blood is crying out to him. And God curses Cain. And God says what? You are going to be a wanderer. You are going to travel the planet, wandering around as this nomad. You're going to be like that kung fu guy, right? You're just going to wondrously travel the planet. Guess what happens? That does not happen. You know what happens? You know what Cain does? He exercises his free will. He gets married. I don't know how that works. I don't know who he married, but he married somebody. And then what does he do? He builds the very first city, Enoch, after his first son. He's able to actually bypass God's will. How does this work? I don't know. But what I do know is things get progressively worse. So we have this entire civilization that is basically built off the blood of Abel. There is an evil race. For lack of a better term, there is a full-blown evil race. And God's answer to that is Seth our amazing drummer this morning. <laughs> Adam's, Adam and Eve said, all right, we've got to try again. And they have Seth. And Seth was created in Adam's image. It also comes across that Seth was created in God's image. And it was another attempt to build a new race of people that loved God and that weren't tied to material possessions. And then it said that men began to walk with the Lord once again. And then there was this entire race. The way that I translate the Bible, these people were called the sons of God. 
Isn't that cool? The sons of God. You know who the descendants of Cain were? The children of man. The children of man. You keep on reading into chapter 3, you're going to see some very strange stuff. You're going to see the scripture that says the the. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, saw that they were very beautiful, and then they came and they married with them and they, had, they procreated. And some people think that, oh my gosh, uh, God has more sons. They take a literalist view. You see the problem with taking a literalist view? Because what does that imply? That implies that Jesus has got some brothers, and we've been able to build entire cults around that idea, but it's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying is there's two races, and they're in competition with each other. And once again, they blow it. Even Seth's descendants blow it because they get tempted by the daughters of men, and they saw that they were beautiful. These are the descendants of Cain, the man that spilt the first blood on the planet. And it all gets messed up again. And what's God's answer? Evil. Evil comes, that's not God's answer. Evil gets spread across the planet. And you saw the movie Noah, right? And you get some really bad dudes. God's creation gets corrupted again. I've got to wrap it up here. Are you ready for this? Remember when I said, Underline, very good. He sees us as very good. And now God is dealing with the situation with a planet that is completely corrupted, completely evil. And this is what the book says. He regretted making us. His heart was so broken, he regretted making us. How can God do that? I thought God was perfect. Free will. It's free will. We can make something beautiful out of our lives or we can make something horrible out of our lives and we get to choose. Free will. And so God is dealing with this gift that he gave us and the results of this gift that he gave us was that he's got to clean up another mess. And he only sees one righteous man, Noah. That's all there was. One righteous man. Because there was only... And, and as far as the standards of the people of this time, he probably wasn't that good. Like all of us, all of our righteousness was probably maybe even a little bit better than Noah's. I'm sure he was a good guy, but he's not as good as us. I don't know. Maybe It's kind of hard to say. But it was good enough to build the ark, to go into a covenant Another relationship with covenant. He says, Noah, if you go into relationship with me, I'll save the planet. I'll save the animals. We don't have to burn the place. We don't have to start over. There's another way out. Because what I saw created was good, and it was very good. Part of my imagination thinks that Noah, like Moses, petitioned God. We don't know. It doesn't say. All right, Jake, get up here. We've got to wrap it up. All right. Uh, second service, 
<laughs> no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the Patriarch second service. Second service is going to be a different message altogether. I didn't even get to the Tower of Babel. If I could have the ushers come to the front too. And um, if you're new, if you didn't know, uh, for a season, for about a year, Granite Creek was Jake's home church. It was his home base while he was doing his ministry. He's got a worldwide, nationwide, amazing ministry. And uh, so he's moved on to Reading. So maybe we can talk him about <laughs> He's moved on to Bethel Church, so he's in community there, which is a great place for him. But um, you know what? This is his, uh, officially his last Sunday with us, and uh, we're excited to see him. But I'll tell you what, let's just go ahead and pray, and then uh, we're going to take a love offering for Jake after this, after this offering. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you've decided to fix our brokenness. And when your perfect plan did not come to fruition, like practically in our lives, it didn't happen. You've always made another way. You've always had not a, not another plan B, but you've had another plan A. And so God, I pray right now that we will just understand the importance about being in not only a covenantal relationship with you, but also a family relationship with you. God, I pray that uh, we won't just see God as transcendent, Elohim, untouchable, but we will also see God as Yahweh, somebody that gets his hands dirty, somebody that is involved in the mess of our lives, that wants to build us and wants to bring us back up. So God, right now, I just pray that you just touch us in the point where we need you. Thank you, God for seeing us as very good. Pray you bless this offering.